Like I said, it's good to be back again with you guys today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 6 today, and I'm going to pick it up in 39. I'm going to go all the way um, to 40. And so uh, a really, really short, not lengthy text today, probably one of the shortest texts we've ever been in. It's very simple. It's not complicated. It's very uh, straightforward and in your face. If this is a new time for you, maybe the first time or first time in a long time, every August when we get back together, we go back and we talk a little bit about our vision here at Dallas Bible Church. We know that vision is a thing that you may hear. It's very easy to forget or see where different pieces come together and they play out in the life cycles of our church. And so we want to talk about that uh, every August. Specifically, we've been talking a little bit about what it means to be marked by grace. And so if you are new around here, one of the ways we talk about our vision is we want to be a multiplying, mission-minded family that is marked by God's grace, that brings joy to our city and glory to God. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about joy to our city, glory to God, how that plays out, this missional element of our gathering here. Uh, I want to go week two here on what it means to be mission uh, or to be marked by God's grace. If you were with us last week or happened to miss out uh, just a little bit, we talked about how do we be marked by grace? If we happen to be a people that, hey, we, we know all about grace. I can teach you the lesson about it. I can sing about it. It's like our favorite song, Amazing Grace, right? Like, I can talk about it, I can tell you all about it, but like, how do we be marked by grace if I know all about it but can't actually say that I'm marked by grace? And so last week, we looked at Jesus' main invitation, which is very simply this. He says, come to me, be with me, follow me. In John 15, he says, abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches, abide in me. And what we talked about last week was the time with Jesus, just simply being with him, in his presence, in fellowship with him, uh, through a constant awareness of connection to the Holy Spirit. We talked about being two places at the same time, right? It, it, it's being physically present over here, be it at work or maybe it's at breakfast or in the context of your kids or a lot of jabbering voices. Maybe it's dirty home. Maybe it's contentious coworkers. Maybe it's a, a family or a family member or something like that being consciously present in two places, physically over here, spiritually, no matter where I may be in traffic on the way to work, I'm aware of the indwelling Holy Spirit and deeply connected to his voice in the middle of that moment. I'm hearing his voice remind me of everything that's true in the middle of the chaos over here. I'm on my way to work and I'm, I'm caught up in prayer and worship realizing how great he is or what he has to say about the people that cut me off or the coworkers that I'm having conflict with or whatever it may be. Physically over here and consciously aware of and deeply connected to the Holy Spirit. And what we said was that time with Jesus, being with him, constantly aware of and connected to, this is how we become marked by Jesus and then ultimately more and more and more like him in the end. It's the last part of that statement I want to dig into and go a little bit deeper with today. It's this idea of becoming like Jesus, not in his divinity. You and I are never going to attain to that, never in his perfection. We're not getting there either. But this idea of that we are becoming more and more like Christ all the time. I've titled this one, uh, The Science of Becoming. And that's what this is, the science of becoming more and more like Christ. In theological circles, it's the language of sanctification. It is this process of becoming more and more holy as we walk with him and surrender to him and we become more and more like him in the end. In everyday language, it's the question of, okay, why in the world is it so difficult for us to change? Right? We, we talked about Paul's statement in Romans where he's like, I do the thing I don't want to do and I don't do the thing that I want to do. Right? Like I, I, I got, I'm the apostle Paul and I'm not able to do what I really want to do. Like why is it so difficult for me to change? Why isn't wanting to become more like Christ why isn't that enough? 
And so that's what our passage is going to help us with a little bit here today. It's a simple passage. It's going to get directly to the point, and we're going to go off on it in a little bit deeper way, in a little bit different fashion than we typically do. Uh, but uh, I want to invite you to hang in there with me. Luke chapter 6, verse 39 and 40. Kind of like last week, I want to give a lot of credit to John Mark Comer. His research and his fingerprints are all over the past couple of weeks here. I want to give him honor, and we're going to quote him in different places where that is necessary, but I uh, want to bring him out there to the forefront. In this section of text, which is Luke 6, this is Jesus' sermon on the plain. It's different than his sermon on the mount. One's on a mountain, one's in the plain. It's a different time, uh, very, very similar tone. Uh, he's preaching. He's, I imagine, an exceptional preacher, much better than myself. And uh, he's preaching, essentially, to people. This is what he does. He teaches them, and they're gathered in the plain, and he's teaching them a very familiar uh, passage. He's talking about not being judgmental, right? He's just talking about not being judgy or anything like that, not being condemning in your tone. And so Luke says this. He says in verse 39, he also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? No, the blind cannot lead the blind. Will they not both fall into a pit? Yes, they would both fall into a pit. The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will become like their teacher. It's the entire parable, two verses. And it's not even complex. It's not one of these mysterious parables. You're going, Jesus, what did you mean by that? Like, it's the most simple, straightforward text right here because what we're talking about today is not complex, but it is very, very difficult. And so this is where he says, he says, uh, he, he calls them blind. This is, he's talking about the Pharisees, right? He's talking about, can the blind lead the blind? No, who is he talking about there? He's talking about the religious leaders. These are the Pharisees of the day. Uh, Jesus calls them blind all the time. They love positions of power. They love to have authority. They love knowing all about the things of God while not actually knowing the heart of God. It makes them very, very dangerous to have all power and authority and to not be refined from the inside out and to have an understanding or knowledge, a true knowledge of who God actually is. He calls them blind here. In verse 40, he continues and he talks about this student. This is a discipleship relationship that he's talking about right here. It's a teacher-student. It's a rabbi-disciple. The word that he uses right here is mathetes, mathetes in, in the Greek, but it's a word that literally means it's a student or it's an apprentice, someone who is following another. It's a disciple is our word for it here today. We talk about it as a follower of Jesus. It's all these different synonyms that say the exact same thing. But he says this, he says, the student is not above the teacher, but the one who is fully trained will become like their teacher. A few observations very simply, and on the forefront of this text, um, I want you to notice the goals of this teacher-student relationship. One of the goals that he mentions right here is that we want to become like our teacher in everything. And not, again, not divinity, not perfection, but we want to become like our teacher in everything. This is one of the goals of a disciple. Um, even in a natural sense, a disciple wants to become like their teacher in character, in lifestyle, and in deed. It's what Jesus said last week. This is to the Father's glory that you and I bear much fruit and become like Jesus. We abide in him and we bear fruit that looks very similar to him. This is one of the goals. Yes, we want to be with him. We want to enjoy his presence. We want to sit with him, receive from him, um, but we also want to become like him in the end. In verse 40, it's going to say this, it takes training. Uh, in other words, there's, there, 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 there's those who are in Christ who are abiding in him, but there are those who are untrained and uh, there are those who are partially trained, but there are those who are fully trained, he says here in the text. And he says the ones who are fully trained, they are the ones who are going to become like Jesus in the end. It also implies that this entire thing is going to take a lot of time. Training takes time. Practice takes time. 
And quite honestly, this is where a lot of us get really, really tripped up because the problem that many of us face when it comes to following Jesus is that time requires patience and training requires persistence. Patience and persistence, two things that if I'm wanting to change, I probably don't have on the forefront of what I'm wanting to change. These are two fruits of the Holy Spirit. I'm probably coming to him saying, okay, God, I need you to develop and change in me something to the point that I'm going to become a patient and persevering person. But these are two qualities that I typically may not have on the forefront of coming to him. And many of us get tripped up right here. And so we quit long before we ever begin because we're sitting here going, yeah, I don't really have a whole lot of patience. I kind of hate waiting. And okay, yeah, I'm never going to arrive to perfection like Jesus. I'm never going to really become like Jesus fully. And so why should I even try? In other words, many of us want change. We desire change. We see change out there. Deep down, we probably even know inside. We may need to change but we simply don't believe that it's possible. And so the question that we need to be asking ourselves as we get into it a little bit further here today is very simply this. Do you really believe that Christ-like change is possible for you? Or have you already arrived? Or is this just how I am? This is my personality type. This is how I'm hardwired. Don't change me, bro. I back off a little. Like This is just who I, just deal with it. This is who I am in concrete for the rest of my days. And before you jump in and answer, you say, yeah, of course we can change. I want you to actually answer that question. Do I really believe that change in me, where I am today, whether you're 20, 14, 80, 90, 100 years old, do you really believe that change is possible for you today? Comer talks about this aha moment in his ministry. Many, many years ago as a young, successful pastor, he grew up in a pastor's home. He was experiencing a lot of success in ministry and church growing and all these different things. He said he felt a lot of frustration because he felt like his life was very forced. And he says that I was seeing a lot of practice and a lot of things going on in the church, even in the church around me over here, but I felt like it was very, very forced. And so my frustration, my frustration was this. It wasn't that I didn't know that I needed to change. It wasn't even that I didn't want to change. He's like, I wanted to change. My problem was I didn't know how to change. Even as a young pastor, I didn't actually know how to change. Told you last week, my story is very similar, except for the fact it wasn't necessarily that I don't know how to change. I grew up in the church, heard it talked about all the time, had parents that taught all these different kinds of things. My problem very personally was that I didn't believe that what Jesus said about change was how I was actually going to change. In other words, when Jesus says, hey, the way that we change is by time with him, in his presence, enjoying his fellowship, Two places at the same time, deeply aware of and connected to the indwelling Holy Spirit. Time with him, receiving him, and then following him over time. Sometimes that means coming to me. Sometimes that means me going to him and following wherever he may be going. But it was actually believing that that is how he brings about his change in me. Rather than creating the to-do list, the goals and the different things that I can take and control, and I can go after, and I can dominate, and I can check it off. Like, that's how I treated the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I would look at that and be like, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Here's all the goals that I have in my life. Okay, this week I'm targeting patience. Never <laughs> worked out that well, right? Kindness is this week. I'm going to go do it. I'm going to go be kind. And this is my problem. It wasn't that I didn't know how especially. It's that I didn't actually believe that what Jesus was saying about how change takes place in you and me was actually how it takes place in you and me. 
And so I want to break down some of the science of becoming this morning, and I'm going to get very specific and break it apart, and all the different, so you can see all the different molecules, atoms, whatever you want to say there for science of becoming, but I want to break it apart right here because hopefully you'll get a vision for how this takes place, and then you'll begin trusting and moving a little bit further into, hey, I believe that this is what God wants to do in me to reform my marriage habits, my personal practice and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Ruth Haley Barton puts it like this. She calls it spiritual formation, which she's not the only one. There's a spiritual formation department in most seminaries. There's a very common language for this, but she defines spiritual formation as this. Spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is the process of Christ becoming formed in us for the glory of God, for the abundance of our lives, and for the sake of other people. I want you to notice that she says in the Christian tradition right here. The reason she says in the Christian tradition, I can't have a hard time with that one. The reason she says in the Christian tradition here um, is because, generally speaking, spiritual formation is not always necessarily a Christian thing. It's a human thing. Every day, every minute of the day, you and I, whether we are being intentional about it or not, becoming Christ-like or not, naturally speaking, are being formed or shaped into something. If you think about it even here, if you were to sit here today, everybody were to leave, you were to sit in the exact same chair where you are, only have food brought to you so that you can live, and like no one else is around you, no influences, you're not online, you're not watching TV, you sat in the exact same chair for the next five years. Five years from now, you're going to be a very different person than you are today. It's the nature of formation. All the time, we are being shaped and we are being formed into becoming somebody or something new. And so the question we need to be asking is not necessarily, can I change? Yes, you can absolutely change. The question we need to be asking is, who are you being formed by and what are you being shaped into? And so to that end, there's two paradigms I want us to walk through here. Um, They come originally from, uh, actually, I don't know that they're original to Comer. He probably got them from somebody else or anything, but I'm going to give him credit for some of that. But he talks a little bit about the paradigm of unintentional spiritual formation, and these are the different things that you don't even have to try. You don't have to do anything intentional. You don't, all you have to do is be. All you have to do is breathe and show up and live in any given day. And these are the different influences that unintentionally form us and shape us from the inside out. The number one thing is the stories that you and I believe. The stories that you and I believe. So it's not necessarily the stories that we hear. It's the stories that we internalize and believe are actually true. These are the narratives. These are the things that we tell ourselves are true in order to make sense of the messy um, nastiness of the world around us. And these are the beliefs, the, the stories that we believe are true. Jonathan Gottschall is a, uh, wrote a book and he has a popular TED talk, uh, but he talks about the power of story. He talks about how we as people, we are obsessed with books. We are obsessed with movies and TV shows and crime podcasts and comics and all kinds of other stories because we were created to be living inside of a story. Anybody else into crime narratives and crime podcasts now? I feel like that's a newer one. That's kind of like, it's fascinating, isn't it? Like and it's gripped us in a lot of different ways. Time Magazine picks up on this. They went a different way. This is not a, a, a Christian influence here, but they talk about how good storytelling is actually imperative for, uh, for good evolutionary behavior. Not our language. Trust me on that. But here we go. He says this. He says, storytelling is actually good for us culturally. It's a powerful means of fostering social cooperation and teaching social norms. It pays valuable dividends to the storytellers themselves, improving their chances of being chosen as social partners, receiving community support, and even having healthy offspring. 
And so their whole point is, hey, you need to become a good storyteller, be immersed in story, and be the one controlling the story, telling the story, because that's going to bring you up the evolutionary ladder. That's not our point by any stretch of the imagination. But the point is that the stories that you and I believe to be true, they help shape the people that we become. And we see it all again all over the place, right? Like the news that we choose to listen to and believe. It's shaped us into two very different types of people, has it not? Like we talked about this a number of, uh, before. It's, it's not just fact-based. Here's the actual facts of what's taken place. There's a narrative behind it. There's actually a desire to shape you into somebody different than you may be. Uh, we, we, we podcast the voices that we trust implicitly. The people that we say, you know what? That person's got it right. That person's got it right. I, 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 if he wrote it, I'm all about it. If she wrote it, I'm, I'm there. They shape the people that we become. The books that we read, the online forums, the communities that we are a part of on there that are explaining the way things are and the things that are going on in the world, the things that we believe about them, they shape the people that we are becoming. And here's the thing. We don't even have to try. It's all un- unintentional. Left to itself and alone, they shape They help influence, at least, and shape the people that we become. Number two are the habits that we live into. The habits that we live into, this is a little bit of what we talked about last week, but we talked about last week even using business language here, that the systems that you set up, meaning the disciplines, the rhythms, the behaviors that you engage in on a regular basis, they are perfectly designed to give you the results that you're seeing in your life, right? The systems, the disciplines, the behaviors, the habits, that you live into, they are perfectly designed to give you the results that you're seeing in your life. Or to put it another way, the things that you do, it does something to us, and it makes us into someone new. That's why so many Hollywood couples you see, um, they, they end up connecting and dating, getting in a real relationship after meeting there on stage, right? Um, and they fall in love on screen or while they're acting it out or anything like that. It's not shocking that you do the habits of love and that somewhere down the line you actually fall in love as you see it, Right? Ross and Rachel, any Friends fans out there? Right, this is in the news, right? I guess they're back together, maybe. I think that's a rumor. I don't know. I don't want to see spreading rumors up here or anything. Read that this past week. They talked about it in an interview. Like when their two characters are coming together, like they did the habits of love. Like they had to fall in love on screen, so they're doing the practice. And every single day, they're coming together in these different ways. And they're like, yeah, we, had a, we crushed on each other hard. And now all of a sudden, years later, they're actually coming together. It seemed, maybe, I don't know. But like it's not shocking point is you do the habits of love you may actually fall in love, right? This is what, this is what he's talking about. I, I'll never forget my own premarital counseling. Um, this past week, we celebrated 19 years together. Uh, praise God Almighty for that. And um, hoping to double that, triple that maybe. We'll see. Um, never forget premarital counseling. But remember, we sat there. I'm saying you guys who just got married, so you may want to pay attention here. Um, but I, I remember, I'll never forget sitting there, and this man is teaching. His name was Ford Madison. I don't know if you guys know. I didn't mean to throw his name out there, but he, he meant a lot to us personally. But he sat there, and he, he was talking with us all about the importance of habits in our marriage and in our life. And he just talked about it. He's like, he's, like, he's just telling me story after story. He's like, these are the difficult bad habits that, that, that had a really difficult time getting over early on in our marriage. And he talked about the different bad habits that were there. He's like, I was not coming home after work and, and, and taking all this time. And then when I did come home, it was, you know, there's TV and there's instead of connecting. And then 
You know, I'm going to go hang out with these friends over here, but I'm not going to go and date my wife or facilitate marriage or romance anymore. And there's all these bad habits of, you know what, the way we did finances, it was like all me and not her. And there's no vulnerability or transparency. And he just talked about bad habit after bad habit after bad habit and the destruction that it created in marriage. And I'll never forget what he said. He looked at me and he goes, Aaron, pay attention to this. Know this now. The long-term health of your marriage will be largely shaped by the habits that you're establishing right now. Like the long-term long term health of your marriage will be largely shaped by the habits that you are establishing right now. So that's what we did. We talked about habits and, and developing healthy habits, communication. When you guys communicate, are you going to breathe life into each other or are you going to use words that tear down and destroy? Are you going to resolve conflict or pretend that it didn't actually take place? Habits, beginning them now. Because 10 years into it, 15, 20, 30, 40 years into it, those are much harder to change much later on. Like uh, spiritually, are you going to build one another up? Are you going to do life together? Are you going to pray together or look at the word of God together or sharpen one another spiritually? Or is it just going to be, that's his thing and this is my thing over here and you're going to do it independently of one another? The good habits that you're establishing here at the beginning. Romance, are you going to prioritize date nights? I'll tell you like 19 years, like even in the poor years, like, like McDonald's was a legitimate date night sometimes. But it was important to sit there across that happy meal and say, babe, tell me about your day. Like, what's going on inside of you? Like, I know, like, dudes, like, we sit there and we, like, we may wrestle it out or something like that. It doesn't really happen well in marriage. But, like, the, the importance of sitting there and developing those good habits at early on. Finances. We're vulnerable. We all got the same passwords. We talk about these different kinds of things. There's no hiddenness and there's no secrets going on. Point of the matter is the habits that you live into, they shape the people that you become. Bad exercise habits. They literally and physically shape you. Right? And we can see that, like bad financial habits, they shape the people that you are. And a lot of times, again, we don't even think about these habits that we walk into and we live out. All it takes is coming in, breathing, and doing life every day, and then falling into a rhythm that you didn't even intentionally set out to create. Number three is our relationships. Our relationships, these are the people around us that shape who we actually are today. Um, but we become like the people that we hang out with on a regular basis, typically speaking. It's why loving parents cared so much about the people that you hung out with in high school and junior high, right? Like, you know, there's all you're like, why are they so interested in who my friend is? Like, they want to know because they understand that the people that we are around, they have a way of largely influencing us. The people that you date have a way of influencing who you are. The trauma from your family has a way of helping you become who you actually are, whether it's a healthy family or an unhealthy family. Relationships shape us in a number of different ways. I'll never forget uh, growing up, junior high, high school, like my boy was Brian Attaway. Like that was my boy. Like we hung out all the time. We could complete each other's sentences. We did sports together. We played together. We hung out together. We thought alike. I mean, we were, we were essentially the same. We'd go off to college. A year later, we'd come back different places, see each other for the first time in a, in a long time. And I'll never forget, I'm like, dude's got different friends over here. I've got different friends over here. We're thinking different now. We're not on the same, like we're not exactly the same. <laughs> like things are different right now. And the reason that things are different is simply for the sake that, you know, closeness and likeness, they go, they go hand in hand. The people that were around, you think about your own friend group even now, they're probably picked on the basis of, hey, we've got a lot of similarities and a lot of things in common. But then that perpetuates itself and you, you begin, you be shaped by the people that we're around. And so relationships have a way of shaping us, again, whether we are intentional about it or not. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but they're influential in our lives. Number four is that very simply all of this takes place in the context of environment. 
All of it takes place in the context of environment, or you can also put the words culture into it. Uh, for us, that would be Dallas, Texas right here. Uh, even within Dallas, there's a very different culture and environment from North Dallas compared to South Dallas, compared to West Dallas and even East Dallas. Uh, there's a lot of difference between where we are right here and Highland Park or Plano or in Frisco or in Prosper or wherever it may be. There's different cultures and there's different environments in the place that we live. If you're not necessarily from Dallas, whenever you go back home and you visit your family, you pay attention to this and you notice this. How over the years, the longer you've been in Dallas and then you go back home, you notice that normal feels different, doesn't it? Every time I go back to Spring, Texas, which is where I'm from, my parents have been there for 40 years. It's where I was pretty much raised and everything. Like every time I go back there, I've been in Dallas now for almost 19, 20 years, something like that. And away, every time I go back, the more and more I'm removed from there and I'm here, I realize how different Dallas is from Spring, Texas. I mean, July 4th, we went back a number of years back, and uh, we were doing the July 4th parade. We got the kids, they got bikes, and they got all the decorations of the red, white, and blue, and all the fun stuff. And I'll never forget, there's this guy, he pulls up, and he arrives in a Bentley, which is not my neighborhood, it's not my upbringing, it's very not spring Texas. And the dude jumps out, he's got slick back hair, and he's got a t-shirt on that says, keep Dallas pretentious. Right? Have you seen this? You've seen this logo, right? You've seen the, kind of the stereotype, keep Dallas pretentious. And I kind of laughed, and people kind of looked, and you're like, all right, it's obvious you're not from spring. It's obvious you're not from around here, or at least you haven't been here very long or anything like that. Point of the matter is we are shaped by the environments that we are in. Uh, there's a publication here in Dallas that's called Paper City. I don't know if you've seen that. It perpetuates a stereotype that Dallas is a city or community or culture that's all about the paper. We've got paper to spend, and we spend it, and we are thin as a result of that spending because of the paper, it's kind of a play on words right over there, but it shapes the people that we want to be. And again, the point of the matter is, it's not intentional. It's just being and living and being surrounded by and influenced by and paying attention in a number of different ways. You don't have to plan it. You don't have to schedule it. You don't have to think about it at all. You just wake up and live and you'll become somebody new. By the way, this is what Paul talks about when he talks about the patterns of the world. And he talks about worldliness. It's what Peter talks about when he says, hey, we've got an enemy here, and he prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. I don't know if you've ever seen this on National Geographic, but he's just talking about, I, I love those videos, right? But lions do that. They sneak around, they prowl. They're not like in your face all the time, right? They're, they're waiting for Bambi to go get a sip of water, uh, get the pond, and to put their head down and not be paying attention and then all of a sudden, the lion sneaks up behind you. When they're not paying attention, it just eats you, right? It's, all the, like it's, the, um, it's the videos you see on social media of the parents that are like, hey, this is going to be great. They go to the zoo with their kid, and you know their kid like, sits with their back to the lions at the glass. You've got the big giant glass, and the kid's just sitting there going, hey, mommy. You know, it's all this kind of stuff. And then the lion like, sneaks up and like, attacks the glass. Am I the only one that have seen these things? Right? Am I wrong? Like, like, parents get a kick out of it. They're like, ha ha, that lion tried to eat my kid, and there's glass here. Anyway. This is how lions operate. They sneak, they prowl. They wait for you to be unintentional, for you not to be assuming anything, not to be thinking about anything, not to be paying attention. And this is the language that's there in Scripture. And so there is a myth that gets in the way of becoming more and more like Jesus. And if we believe it, we'll fall into some of these unintentional patterns and be swayed by them, more and more heavily influenced by them or whatever it may be. But the myth simply says this, I don't need to do anything because change is totally and completely up to God. It sounds awesome. We sing about it a lot in some ways. 
It's found in cliches that we use around here and probably misunderstand or misapply sometimes, but it's cliches like this, let go and let God. Great cliche, true, when it's applied to anxiety, when it's applied to taking off the burdens that I'm holding and bringing them to the feet of Jesus and letting go of these things and letting God come and take over. When it's applied to spiritual formation, it becomes very, very, very bad theology. This is what Comer calls the matrix theory of spiritual formation. You guys remember the movie Matrix? Uh, Trinity comes, you remember this scene, like Trinity comes and she just downloads a program and then all of a sudden they're able to do whatever they want to do. Right? It sounds awesome in the movie, you can just hit a button and boom, the microwave happens and bam, you're a different person or anything like that. It's not how it plays out in real life. And so back to the original parable here, Jesus very, very simply makes it clear. Everyone who is fully trained, not untrained, not partially trained, everyone who is fully trained That's who's going to become like their teacher. Everyone who practices the teachings, the lifestyle of Jesus, being with him on a regular basis will become more and more like Jesus in the end. This is what D.A. Carson calls grace-driven effort. For those of us, this makes a little uncomfortable at first. It does with me in a a number of different ways. But D.A. Carson calls it grace-driven effort. And he says, we've talked about this in the past, but he says, people do not naturally drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, and obedience to Scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift toward superstition, and we call it faith. We cherish the undiscipline of lost self-control, and we call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness, and we delude ourselves into thinking that we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness, and we convince ourselves that we become liberated. In other words, it's not a given that you and I are going to become like him simply on the basis of being found in him. In a case, again, this makes us nervous. Dallas Willard kind of clarifies it a little bit better, I think. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And I'll give you an example of this. A little while ago, this, this past summer, Caleb picked up golf. He saw that Daddy loves golf. This is a way to connect with Daddy. Uh, I love him, and we do these different things together. And so he did golf camp, and he goes off, and he's doing some golf camp and learning how to do it right and everything. And we come back, and we play a little bit together. And then, and then I'll tell him, I'm like, hey, let's, let's get this different stuff. And we go in the backyard. He's got the little foam balls and stuff. And I'm like, why don't you practice that a little bit? Why don't you work on your swing? We can practice it a little bit. Here it is, church, like at no point is my son out there practicing in order to earn my love. I don't ask him to go into practice the art of golf that I'm going to love him anymore. My love for him is absolutely 100% certain. The reason that he's out there practicing is because my love for him, no matter how strong it may be, it could do nothing to make him a good golfer. To be a great golfer, you have to listen and you have to practice. And so again, Jesus very simply says this. He uses this analogy and he says, those who are fully trained in practice, they are the ones who will become more and more and more like their teacher. And we see it play out all throughout the gospels. The disciples, they don't just hang out with Jesus and be with Jesus. It it does begin there. They walk with him. They pay attention to his lifestyle. They are intentional about following Jesus because the way to counter unintentional spiritual formation is through intentional spiritual formation. 
right? The way to counter the unintentional is to be intentional. And so notice some of the different things they do. We talked about it last week as Jesus ascends into the heavenlies, the disciples move forward and they live in a constant awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit instead of being transformed by the environment in which they live. His stories, his narratives are the ones that are taking root in their life. It's what we talked about with walking by the Holy Spirit. It's being in two places at the exact same time, physically over here, spiritually aware of his presence in here and what he happens to be saying in the middle of this culture and the middle of this environment that we live in over here, being physically here with the toddlers, with the kids and hearing his voice over the toddler voices say, you are enough and your sacrifice is actually seen. It's being in the workplace, in the middle of failure at work, And hearing the exact same voice ring true in your head, physically present over here, hearing his voice remind you, you are enough, and that your sacrifice is being seen. The disciples live this way in the presence of the Holy Spirit, and they carry it out in the latter part of the New Testament. They listen to Jesus' teaching as they follow him. Because the way to counteract the power of a story, church, the way to counteract the power of a story is through a confident understanding of God's story. Right? This is the way to counteract the unintentional story. And so Jesus did this. He went and he taught. He preached sermons. And they sat and they listened on on a mountaintop or in the plains. But Jesus taught. And the beauty of the way that he taught is Jesus even used stories. Right? What did he do? He, He taught them parables, stories about the way things actually are according to God. And then he undermines the stories and the narratives of the day. And he says things like, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the story of the day. You've heard it said that we should, that we should cling to this instead of that. You've heard it said that we should get vengeance. Otherwise, they're going to pick on you and you're going to be at the bottom. Like, you've heard it said this over here, but I'm telling you, you should love your neighbor, but also your enemy, the ones who are persecuting you. And he says this, he says, he uses this language, it's just a beautiful poetry and it's story to counteract the stories of his day. He's going to say the kingdom of God, it's like a farmer that's out there spreading seed. Or that faith is like a mustard seed. Or that the first will be last, the last will be first in the kingdom of God. Truly the greatest among you will be your servant. Or you've heard it said this, and I'm telling you this, the whole time he's undermining the stories of his day that we may listen and learn from God's one true story over here. And so the disciples sit at his feet, they soak it in, and they listen, and they learn the voice of their teacher, of their rabbi, of their God. And so we understand, like when we talk about spiritual formation, like it always requires more than thinking well, but it's never going to be less than that, okay? We have to understand, like spiritual formation is always going to be more than learning and understanding and conquering concepts. It is always going to be more than knowing, but it's never going to be less than understanding the voice of the one that we're following. It's why Paul is going to say in Romans chapter 12, don't be conformed to the world. Don't be conformed to the stories of the world. Don't be conformed to the narratives of the world. Instead, be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind, he says. By the renewing of your mind. In other words, it's not by hoping that the world's story is always going to align with God's story or that my faith is always going to be in the majority and never in the minority or anything like that. He says, no, no, no. The way that you and I are transformed over time is through a renewal of your mind. That's when he says in chapter 12 that you'll be able to test and approve what the will of God is. That which is good, that which is pleasing, and that which is perfect. And so the disciples sit and they listen and they learn the voice of Jesus. They sit underneath his teaching, and they come to understand it. And they do it all in the context of an intentional biblical community. I love this about what they do. They, they pay attention, and they realize Jesus did not do life alone. 
He he didn't do life alone. And so they come together and they do life intentionally in the context of biblical community because the way to, again, overcome the unintentional formation of various relationships that we have in our lives is to be intentionally formed in the context of biblical community. And some of us are kind of going, okay, well, what's the difference between biblical community and the relationships that we live in all the time? I love Comer makes a delineation like this, and I think it's right. But he says, generally speaking, the relationships we have um, that we're talking about here, they are self-selected on the basis of preference. It's not necessarily a bad thing. We choose friends on the basis of preference. Biblical community includes the followers of Jesus that we inherit. Biblical community are the followers of Jesus that we inherit. And we make a decision to follow Jesus with them because we know that we cannot and we should not try to follow Jesus alone. And so we look at Jesus, we see that he didn't just have one disciple. He didn't, lose, he didn't live in isolation. And we see that the disciples, they pick up on his pattern. They continue to live in the same lifestyle and in the same ways of Jesus. They go and they make disciples. They continue to live in community. It plays out in the New Testament. It's called this gathering called the church, the body of Christ. And we see transformation take place in the context of intentional biblical community because biblical community is always going to do two things that isolation and independence are never, ever, ever going to be able to do. Number one is exposure, and number two is encouragement. You'll never be able to get exposure. You'll never have encouragement apart from intentional biblical community. Exposure is the thing that um, you guys are going to be learning very, very soon. It's the thing that we discovered in our first year of marriage. As you walk in, or maybe it's not marriage, maybe it's a roommate or something like that, and you're coming in, and hey, I'm living with someone in close proximity now, and they're seeing my life who I really am, and you're discovering over time in the context of proximity that, hey, I'm not as awesome as I thought that I actually was, (laughs) right? You remember this first year of marriage, you're like, wow, I guess I am kind of rude. I didn't know that I could be short. I didn't know that I I didn't know that I snored. First, like, I didn't know that I had, like, uh, I didn't know that I freaked out in my sleep or that I walked in my sleep or talked to my, I didn't know any of these things, right? This is what we're talking about with exposure. It's other people being invited into your life that help you see what's really true, all the different things you can't see for yourself. You can't get it doing life alone. You can't get it in a prayer closet by yourself, living in isolation, disconnected from the rest of an actual intentional biblical community. The other thing that they give you is encouragement. This is what the author of Hebrews is talking about when he says, let us encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of us are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Chapter 3, 13. Chapter 10, he's going to say the very similar thing. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking or forgetting about our own assembling together. Some are in the habit of doing, he says, but encouraging one another. And all the more as we see the day of Jesus Christ drawing near. You don't get that in isolation. You don't get that with just happy thoughts because at the end of the day, you know what's behind your own happy thoughts. You know that there's nothing of substance to hold up that foundation. And so biblical community comes in and they tell you what's true and they encourage you and they lift you up. This past Friday was in the middle of our own biblical community. And I'll just tell you from experience, like it's life-giving people that I never would have otherwise known or chosen. I didn't know them ahead of time. These weren't my best friends. Brought into biblical community around a common God and around a common goal to be know him and to become more like him in the end. Over the years that we've walked together, coming together, and I'll tell you what we did. All we did, we came together in somebody's house. We made food. We told stories and we laughed. And then we got vulnerable and real and talked about what's really happening in our lives. And as things came up, we prayed for one another. And over different weeks, we would come and we would open up the truth of God's word. 
and we would discover what he reveals about himself. And then we would, we would come underneath it and say, Father, what are you showing us about yourself? And what does this mean for me right now at this point in my time? And we would challenge one another. we build one another up. And I'll just tell you, it's life-giving. When you've got intentional community, biblical community around you, coming together with one God, one purpose, and same goal in place, then you've got vulnerability and transparency and people coming around and building you up and reminding you of everything that's true. And yeah, it's messy. Yes, it gets difficult. Yes, it gets hard. It requires selflessness. It requires getting over some preferences. It's life-giving in the end. I'll never forget the time that Kat and I showed up at a group nearly 10 years ago. Um, and it was just one of these days, one of these weeks, there was so much stuff going on all around us. It was heavy. We were in tears. We were not connecting on the same page. And we sat in our car outside of our life group, not wanting to be there that night, in tears, saying, should we even be there? Is it right for us to be here tonight? And we walked into that place. They saw the weight that was going on inside of our souls, and they surrounded us, and they loved us, and they prayed for us, and they listened to us, and they breathed life into us. I'll tell you, it's the stories that you've heard. I'm looking at people over here dealing with COVID at certain points this past year and cancer recovery this past year. And community comes around you and they do for you what you can't do for yourself. You'll never get it in isolation. You'll never get it being independent and just saying, you know what, I got this. I don't need the church. Love Jesus, but I hate the church. Well, that's kind of like, I'm not going to go down that track or anything. It's inconsistent. It's inconsistent. It's like saying, hey, I love you, but I can't stand your bride. Like, we're fighting over that statement. You understand that, right? This is my bride. This is how Jesus describes the church. And so this is what they do. They come together. Because the way to counter any negative impact of relationships is to do life with people who also want to go where you're going. And then the last one that we see here is practice. And this is where he begins the entire thing, but this is practice. He says those who are fully trained in practice, they are the ones who are going to be like their teacher. Luke chapter 9, this is after months and months of sitting around listening to Jesus' teaching. What does he do with the disciples and the followers of, that are there? He says, no, 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 we're not taking a test. Here's the Q&A. Here's the multiple choice. Do you know all the right things about me? He sends them out into the community one by one, and he gives them authority. And he says, I want you to go and to preach the kingdom of God, heal diseases, cast out demons, practice all the things that we've been talking about. Put it into practice. Because the only way to counter the bad habits that we live into is through practice, meaning the disciplines, the lifestyle of Jesus that we see him live in all the time, which help us be with him in his presence, hearing from him. These are things like worship all the time, meditation upon his word, prayer, fasting, biblical community, serving, evangelism, loving other people, biblical justice, rest, all these different rhythms. And so this is where it gets really, really tough because the reality is when we talk about transformation, I would like to push a button and have it done immediately. I would love to pray a prayer. God, give it to me. I want it. And for it to actually be true in my character long term. But it's just not how formation works. Let me ask you a question. Like, like what do you think would happen if I signed up Caleb tomorrow to go play in the Masters? I was like, hey, buddy, good news. I signed you up for a tournament. You're going to be competing against like Rory and like all these dudes, the uh, Chambro, whoever they may be. Uh, you're going to be competing. Like this could be awesome. You think that would go well for them? I'd probably have a lot of fun. I would enjoy it a little bit, being able to go and walk on that grass. Probably take my shoes anyway. It's not going to work out well for them. Like, what if I sat there and I was like, "Hey, buddy, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to try really, really hard at this tournament." You think that's going to work? 
No, because it's not a matter of trying. It's a matter of training. Like, what if I prayed for him to be able to do it? Holy Spirit, God, give him Tiger Woods' ability in his prime right now. I'm trusting that you are going to make this man able to win this tournament. Does it work like that? No, it's, a matter, it's not a matter of a one-time prayer. It's a matter of practice is what he's saying. And so here it is, church. It's not that he can't be great at golf. He absolutely can't. It's that he won't be great yet because proficiency takes time and practice. And this is how we need to approach the bad habits that we come into while following Jesus. It's not that you can't be free of anxiety or lust or greed or laziness or apathy or addiction or whatever the thing may be. It's simply that you're not there yet. Because being like Jesus requires time with Jesus in practice. So Comer says the practices of Jesus, meaning these spiritual disciplines, these rhythms, these that we use and we walk in in order to be with him all the time, they don't just help us live well, they reorient our affections and our longings in order to bring us more and more into the life of Jesus. And it's true. I'll tell you this past month, I had an opportunity to get away and actually rest and to go into, at the beginning of the month, I went away to a place to go into be alone. And I'll just tell you, like, it's not my habit. It's not my natural thing in me to want to go and to be alone. can't tell you how many times this past year there's been stress, there's been anxiety, there's been problems culturally all around us that have weighed heavy. And I've cried out to the Lord in prayer saying, God, I need your peace. I need your rest. Will you come and do this for me immediately? And I've cried out, and I'll just tell you that those times are nothing compared to the times that I'm actually practicing the presence of Jesus and getting away to practice time with him. All I did, all I did was get away for a little, bit of, a little bit of time. I went into a home. No one was there. They knew I was there. I was allowed to be there. Um, and I made coffee. And then I came out to a couch, and I opened up the truth of his word. And I sat there just line by line, just a little tiny bit at a time, just read it. And God, help me see you in the middle of this thing. Jesus, I want to know you. What are you saying to me about yourself? Where do I fall in line with this? Jesus, what do I need to know about you? What do I need to know about your truth right now in the middle of this moment? And I'll tell you that time practicing the presence of Jesus through the indwelling Holy Spirit and through his word was able to accomplish more change than any one-time hope or fleeting prayer, which God does answer those prayers, and he brings those momentary times in at times. But I'm telling you, long-term transformation, I'm telling you there's more taking place in the middle of those times, practicing the presence of Jesus than anything fleeting we could ever hope for. He brought refreshment, he brought filling, he brought inspiration and change, and all of that was simply in the matter of 24 hours being with him. Can you imagine if this was a rhythm and a lifestyle that we lived in rather than one-time moments on the timeline of our life? Many of us walked in today, and we sat there, and we're kind of going, okay, like, I don't really know if change is possible. Is it really possible for me, like, given my trauma, given the amount of brokenness that I walked through in my past? Isn't this just who I am, just got to deal with it? Like, do you really believe that the change is possible for me? And if that's you, I want you to hear loud and clear. The answer today is an emphatic yes. It is absolutely positively possible for you today. It's not a microwave and a button that you push. It's something that takes time and it's something that takes training. 
And this is the invitation for us today, that we would be a people that practice his presence. The peace that we ask for, the peace that we long for, and that we pray for, it's absolutely there, but it takes practice. Jesus says, come to me, be with me, and you will find rest. You want freedom? The freedom is there, but it's in the practice. You want joy? It's there, but it's in the practice. You want a new ability to love and a re Uh, a makeover in your marriage or your relationships or anything like that, it's there, but it is found in the practice. You want confidence that is there practicing to learn and understand his story. May we be a people who practice coming to him day by day by day, being with him, knowing with him, and knowing him, enjoying him, listening to him, and following him wherever he may take us. And may we know his life more and more and more being produced in us over time. Father God, we love you and we praise you. You don't leave us alone, God. You don't leave us alone. You don't leave us hopeless or helpless. You don't leave us resigned to the same place we were when we began. God, you give us the indwelling Holy Spirit. You give us your inspired word. You give us the gift of your presence. Jesus, may we be a people that find solace and healing and new life in your presence. May we believe that a little bit more. Anyone who's come in today, even speaking to myself, God, may we believe that life and transformation is found in your presence more and more. God, would you set someone free today and then tomorrow and the day after that, more and more would we walk in your freedom. More and more would we walk in your love. More and more would we walk in your joy and in your peace. You're invited. God, would you come and have your way in us? We pray this in Jesus' name. 